But at the same time, there's this idea that there's going to be this global catastrophic event that's going to affect everything and everyone simultaneously due to a cyber attack. And that's just rather obtuse and absurd. This is Lock and Code, a Mauerbytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today concerns critical infrastructure. Do you remember how weeks ago we dove into the recent spate of ransomware attacks that gripped the world's attention? I'm sure you do, because by the time this airs, we might have seen another such attack. But within those ransomware attacks are examples of attacks on what can generally be understood as critical infrastructure. This is a broad term that encompasses the many services that people need, that societies need, to function on a basic level. For example, here in the United States, it's everything you can kind of assume, uh, energy grids, water treatment plants, dams, and communication networks, so our phone lines, satellites, wireless technology. But it also includes healthcare, food and agriculture, and government facilities like city halls. And when you start to look at the ransomware victims in the past two or three months, many fit the critical infrastructure category. Colonial Pipeline, hit by Darkseid, delivers oil and gas. JBS, reportedly hit by R-Evil, processes beef, chicken, and pork. And the Health Service Executive, hit by Conti, provides healthcare services in Ireland. And yes, you could say, well, that's the nature of ransomware. Cyber criminals are going to hit the organizations that have the most pressure to pay up. Ransomware is on a tear. Everyone is going to get hit. However, in 2021, we've actually seen two targeted attacks against two separate water treatment facilities in the United States. In January, a cyber criminal deleted applications that a California water treatment facility used to treat its water. And in February, a malicious cyber intruder or group of intruders successfully increased the levels of sodium hydroxide at a water treatment facility in Florida. Neither of those attacks led to any poisonings, but these were targeted attacks that worked. They were caught. They were stopped. Yes, but only after entry. So what's happening today? To help us understand critical infrastructure cybersecurity, how are these systems built, what attacks do these organizations plan for, are those attacks strictly cyber-based, and is there any truth to a so-called big one? We're speaking to Leslie Carhart, principal threat hunter for the industrial cybersecurity company, Dragos. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Leslie, I just wanted to get right into it. There's so much we can cover. And let's begin with... Critical infrastructure, let's begin with industrial control system security. That is something that I know little about. So to familiarize myself and our audience, can you just help us understand what do you do? Because it sounds quite fascinating. Okay, so I'm an incident responder. So digital forensic and incident response is pretty familiar to a lot of your audience, but I do it in a very specialized niche. And so we have to understand what an industrial control system is to talk about industrial control system and critical infrastructure security. 
you are surrounded by industrial control systems every day, your entire life. They do things like make sure that water comes out of your faucet, make sure that electricity comes out of your outlets, get your goods and services to where they need to be through logistic systems. They power all types of manufacturing. They also power transportation systems, things like trains, ships, et cetera. So they are a huge backbone of our society and they're not necessarily computers. They can be computers, but they could also be gears and pulleys. They can be mechanical, they can be analog, they can be simple electric systems, but they can also be more complex digital systems, which is where cybersecurity really comes into play. And of course, making things digital often makes them more easy to monitor and more efficient to maintain and control in a broad scale and across large regions. And so um, there's always a push to digitize more and more critical infrastructure systems. So what do I do specifically? Well, as I mentioned before, I'm an incident responder. And so I'm one of the probably fairly limited number of people in the world who when a critical infrastructure system, and what, what that's defined as varies across the world. It could be simply water, power, gas, et cetera, or in some places it includes things like manufacturing, things that keep society going, medical, transportation. So when one of those things potentially gets infected or hacked, has some kind of cybersecurity incident, I'm one of those few people in the world who goes out to investigate how it happened and how to prevent it from happening again and recover and keep providing those critical infrastructure services. You mentioned that you are one of the few people who do this. And from what I can tell, absolutely, right? You're one of the few. Why are there so few of you? First of all, you have to know two separate fields, kind of. So you have to know you know, your cybersecurity incident response, which is a very broad field. You know, that's two disciplines right there, incident response and digital forensics. So there's a lot right there. And then you also have to have a grasp of how these industrial processes work. And that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily a chemical engineer or something. And I definitely have colleagues who are electrical engineers, chemical engineers. I do have a, a degrees as well as in networks in avionics and electronics, which helps me a lot. But you have to have a grasp of processes because you're no longer working on computers in a vacuum as part of a computer network. You're working on computers as part of systems that make sure that people stay alive. So you have to understand the safety controls and the features of those systems and how the processes can fail so that you know how to make good decisions about incident response. So there's a lot of knowledge required and a lot of people, it's totally doable. People can certainly learn to do both those things to a sufficient level, but it's a little daunting for, for a lot of people to launch into that world as well as the large field of cybersecurity and digital forensics and insert response. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, <laughs> just hearing it. I wanted to move into what's happening today, right? Or what a lot of folks have been seeing for the past couple of months, because pretty recently we had another guest on, a fellow named Brian Honan. We were talking about ransomware attacks and just the nature of how we digest the news. We only see what can be reported on. And with ransomware, we learned that there is so much that is happening that is not being reported on. There's so many attacks that, of course, people are not coming to the news about. People are still ashamed of these types of attacks. They're shy about them. They don't want to be seen as, as a victim for, again, so many normal, obvious reasons. And I wanted to ask kind of the same question to you, right? There are some attacks that we've seen in the news recently. There's the one on Colonial Pipeline, right? That big one. And then those two that I mentioned at the top of the show, two attempted attacks on water treatment facilities in the United States. And so what I wanted to ask is, this is only what is being reported and what we are seeing. In your view, 
how bad is it? I think it's two questions. Is it bad? And two, how big of an issue is this? So I, I usually agree with Brian on things. I have a lot of respect for him. So I'm going to say probably very similar things to what he said in his interview. It depends on how you define bad. Okay. So there's there's two different perspectives on all of this. There's the utter panic. Oh my God, there's going to be this massive cyber attack perspective, which I don't think is correct because these systems are honestly so complex and so distributed and so heterogeneous that they are really difficult to attack at scale. You know, it's it's just kind of difficult to do. And then there's the other side of things, which is the people who think, oh, it's all fine. There's never really been a real substantial cyber attack. This isn't really happening. And that's not true either, because I obviously make a living doing this stuff. So I could kind of divide the incidents that I respond to, and I respond to quite a few on a regular basis. It's, it's, it's my full-time job into three categories. And the first one is, of course, commodity malware, like ransomware when it's not targeted. You know, it just happens to get into an industrial system and it wreaks havoc because there's lots of Windows systems in industrial networks, not necessarily directly controlling industrial devices, but doing things like providing the control interfaces, the HMIs, or, you know, collecting telemetry data, the historians, or other control interfaces or control computers that do types of master control, distributed control across the, the environment. So they can be really disruptive and it can be a real pain, especially with a lot of legacy systems out there to clean up after a ransomware or a worm incident in these networks. The second category of things that I respond to are, of course, insider attacks. And that's one that we don't talk about a lot. And people don't, it doesn't make the news because companies don't want to announce that they've had an, a malicious insider in their environment. But it happens all the time. And once again, we have this nexus of those two fields of knowledge. So cybersecurity or computers and industrial networks. The people who work in these environments have those two things already. So if they want to wreak havoc, if they're mad because they didn't get a promotion or you know, they're unhappy with what their company's doing, they can certainly pose a serious threat. And that's not to say that there's not the, the vast, vast majority of operators and engineers in industrial facilities are very, very honest. There's not a huge population of, of malicious insiders out there. But once again, there's a limited number of people responding to this. So I do see it quite regularly because we're getting called all over the world to respond to these types of things. And finally, the third type of incident that we respond to is, of course, more targeted attacks, more what we call advanced or sophisticated attacks against industrial systems. And those do happen. And people are trying to especially do reconnaissance and build footholds and start to understand how they could do something very nefarious in the future. Usually that's more, much more well-resourced adversaries who have some secondary motive to do that, whether it's geopolitical or, or trade negotiations, industrial sabotage, things like that. So more resources adversaries are definitely prepping for future attacks. And that kind of encapsulates what we're seeing. And a lot of those things that I just described, so things like industrial sabotage, insiders, even just having unpatched systems to get infected by ransomware, of course, businesses don't want to talk about that on the news. They don't want that getting out. And that's totally understandable. I mean, there's shareholders involved. You know, in terms of utilities, there's certainly public perceptions, potential for public panic, things like that. So, yeah, a lot of this is happening and you don't see it in the news. Of the three categories that you mentioned there, all of them pretty fascinating because, again, like you said, I, I of course, hadn't considered insider threats. But insider threats are like in every industry. You know, it's there's there's always going to be I'm glad that you mentioned, you know, it's not that folks who work in this are 
attuned to being insider threats. It's that insider threats. Yeah, they, the, the vast majority of people, I, I firmly believe, are quite honest and and uh, trustworthy and have their fellow humans' best interests at heart. <laughs> Other people might not agree with me there, but there's there's always going to be people who take getting fired or something in a very negative way. Of the types of attacks that you see, is there a way to break down just which are the most popular? Like, which do you see the most volume of? I think that it's it's kind of broken down right now in equivalently in industrial networks, at least from my perspective. I can't give you firm numbers, of course, on this on this podcast, but in my experience over not just doing this at Dragos, but doing variants of industrial cybersecurity for quite some time, it, it ends up being a mix of those things. And the way you respond to each one of those three types of attacks is pretty different. The situation's different, the public pressure, the uh, political state of things inside the company. So there are three totally different scenarios and they kind of happen in equal quantities. I wanted to understand whether it has gotten worse or better. And I think we'll have to dive into how security has has been built up over decades within critical infrastructure systems. But again, from your view, I mean, is there a noticeable trend either up or down, you know, good or bad as of recent? Once again, I think that depends a lot on how you define bad and how what your perception of quote unquote bad is in an industrial environment. Have things increased? It's really hard to say because people are detecting more. For a very long time, industrial networks were one of the first quote unquote internet of things set of devices that was connected to the computer networks. Mm-hmm. Um, we see it in a lot of smart devices today, but they they were started to be connected to computer networks long before we started having a bunch of smart devices in our homes. It's interesting. They were kind of a sneak peek into what we'd see in smart devices um, 10 years, 15 years later. So there was this very early adoption of connecting these systems to networks that were originally not network devices. You know, there are simple serial devices that are now doing serial over Ethernet and stuff like that. And there's also more bringing in commercial networking devices, commercial PCs into these these environments because they're less costly for vendors to provide and configure and develop for. So you've, you've got more PCs, you've got more traditional computing devices, network devices, things like that. And that means that not only are you more vulnerable potentially to attacks, that's, that's certainly the case, but you also can start deploying security monitoring, things like that. So you may be more aware of the things that are happening in your environment. So I don't think it's fair to say that things are worse. In a lot of ways, people are more aware of the threats and they're deploying more security monitoring. They're starting to build incident response plans for their industrial environment specifically. They're starting to do threat hunting and penetration testing, red teaming and stuff in their industrial environments. And that's great. And that means that they catch more stuff. That sounds great. Like that sounds like things that we want to hear, right? Because I think a lot of times you see a story like, how did this person get into this water treatment facility? How did this dam get breached? And it appears like maybe there's this misunderstanding that like this is happening everywhere and that um, it's just not being reported on and that these things are like critically vulnerable. And it sounds like actually what's been happening, it sounds like there's been some progress. There has yep. been in in operators and also in vendors. There's been progress made, and I'm very proud of some of the the manufacturers out there of industrial equipment that are thinking more about cybersecurity and deploying more security tools with their deployments of their industrial equipment. I would love to know about how we got to that 
level, you know, of, of pushing people forward. Because I think a lot of folks have a fear, like you said at the beginning, that you work in a field in which you're making sure that water comes out of a faucet, you know, that electricity gets out of an outlet. And there's this idea that that stops one day because of a cyber attack. How did we get to the to where we are in which there is some in which there seems to be there seems to be like you said progress you know that there isn't just failing left and right This is a saga that's been going on kind of under the radar for again like the last decade and a half and people in OT as we call it operational technology or industrial systems are very cognizant of risk as long as they're given the proper variables and the proper data they spend their entire careers measuring risk, process risk, risk of health and safety issues for their operators, for technicians, risk to producing dangerous or bad products, environmental contaminations, things like that. They live their lives quantifying risk. And they really think about things in their environments in terms of catastrophe. What is the worst thing that could happen in my environment? And then they think about ways to mitigate that risk. And fortunately for us in cybersecurity, a lot of the same things that we think about happening because of a cyber attack are things that they've already thought about happening because a valve fails or because a pump fails or there's a break in a pipe somewhere, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those risks have been somewhat mitigated in a lot of cases because, you know, they're physical process risks eventually. You're talking about something like a water treatment plant. It's noteworthy to say that in the the recent cases we've seen where water facilities were attacked, the attacks were caught because there were other mitigations in the process to keep those bad things from happening, even if they're just human. So they are thinking about risk. So there's already mitigations in place for the end result of a cyber attack potentially happening in a lot of cases. And that's great. So a more sophisticated, determined adversary has to think about how to get around those mitigations. And that's why industrial cyber attacks that are targeted and try to achieve a specific physical kinetic goal take a lot of time and preparation and a lot of resources on on behalf of the adversaries. They are oftentimes in networks for months. They oftentimes have to build their own industrial facility to learn how to attack it. It can be quite costly. Now, that doesn't mean that things like ransomware aren't really disruptive. They are incredibly frustrating and costly to recover from, but they're not necessarily making something explode. You know, in a lot of cases, when you have a ransomware attack, you're just talking about loss of visibility to how the system's operating. So you, sh- you shut down because it's a safety concern. Or in other cases, it might be a billing concern, et cetera. So that's not necessarily these catastrophic scenarios people are envisioning in their heads. But those catastrophic situations, there's been a lot of thought over the last decades of industrial operations into how to prevent those from happening. And that includes human controls, mechanical controls secondary safety systems, things like that. And those all go into preventing those catastrophes. So once again, it is kind of, yes, you can haphazardly cause something bad to happen in an industrial facility. And bad things do happen to industrial facilities due to maintenance errors and and operational errors and, and equipment failures fairly routinely, unfortunately. But they would happen a lot more if there weren't immense amounts of hours spent in planning out mitigations and how to keep these systems from failing catastrophically. I hope that makes sense. It does. And there are like three things I want to dig into. (laughs) (laughs) The first is that you said that people who are cyber criminals who are trying to pull off targeted attacks, that you said that sometimes they have to build a facility to attack it, I guess, to understand it. Can you tell me more about that? 
I can talk about hearsay. I can't necessarily talk on this podcast about specific cases um, uh-huh. for a lot of reasons, but yeah. that is something that's well documented that even on a device level, when people are deciding that they want to attack a specific safety system or industrial controller, things like that, they'll certainly buy that controller or you know acquire it from somewhere and figure out which firmware revision they're working with and learn to attack that device with the specific configuration. Now, there have been allegations that in certain uh, high-profile cyber attacks, it's possible that the the people involved may have purchased entire systems or or utilized specialists on those systems to launch those attacks. And that certainly seems like something you'd have to do from my perspective to to launch very complex attacks that defeat multiple layers of safety systems, safety controls, et cetera. You really have to know, again, how does the process work? If you have ever gone into like any kind of industrial process facility and asked to see a diagram of the full process, like something like refining, for instance, mm-hmm. it's a long, complex process. There's a whole bunch of sub-processes that all have to happen in the proper sequence and they feed into one another. And it ends up being this garbled line diagram in front of you, this this <laughs> this process, like it's, it's incredibly complex. And so if you want to attack it and you want something noteworthy and and horrible to happen, you're going to have to have a very good understanding of what every little line in that diagram does. I was so interested in it because, and maybe this is a weird analogy to make, but it reminded me of how sometimes like in movies, like blockbuster movies, instead of paying a team of people to digitally create a plane crash, the studio's like, let's just crash a plane because it's going to get us the result we want. And I was like, you already know that this is going to be astronomically expensive if you're going into like (laughs) defeating, you know, some complex process to cause something really horrible to happen. You know, it's going to be incredibly expensive. It's going to be a months long process. You're going to have to have teams of people who are paying salaries to, you're going to have to have experts on industrial systems, maybe on chemical or electrical engineering. You're going to have to keep all those people quiet. I mean, it's going to be a huge (laughs) endeavor. So why not, as you so aptly said, quote unquote, crash the plane instead of instead of simulating it. Something else that you mentioned that I wanted to dig into is that you said that there are so many controls, right? There are so many controls to prevent catastrophes. And that is a lovely counterpoint to hear because recently, right, NBC News broke this story about the attack on the water plant in California. They quoted an industrial cybersecurity systems consultant who was trying to illustrate that many water treatment facility plants in the United States are short-staffed. Yeah, I think I know who that was, and I agree with them wholeheartedly. (laughs) Yes, and I think I've said the same thing in articles about the the same incident. Yes, that's also true. Yeah, and he said something. He says, uh, if you could imagine a community center run by two old guys who are plumbers, that's your average water plant. And I think that image of, oh, it's short-staffed, kind of conflicts with the fact as well that, okay, well, it's short-staffed, but like you said, they caught the attack. And so help me understand... Are these things in conflict? Help me reconcile what's going on. Okay, so the first thing that you need to understand about industrial systems is that the swath of technologies and verticals in in what we call industrial control systems is massive. And each one of those verticals is very different in how it functions, how it operates, the processes, the personnel, and also the funding and the resources that go into that those 
technologies, including security technologies. We have very well-resourced verticals in some cases, like uh, oil and gas is fairly well-resourced in cybersecurity. Electric is doing a lot better, especially nuclear. But then we have other utilities in the United States that are rather under-resourced, and that certainly includes water, because water tends to be a municipal utility. It's not a large corporation operating things with you know, central resources for cybersecurity and IT. It's usually a really small shop. And I really like that quote that you gave about, about what it really looks like at the municipal center. A lot of those water facilities have one IT person and they have to do everything. And I've met a lot of them and they really care about cybersecurity, but they are woefully understaffed. So they can't just spend a lot of time setting up security tools. They've got to like patch computers. They've got to, you know, make sure accounts are provisioned and and decommissioned properly, basic things like that. And they just don't have the money or the people to do more. And that's a big problem. I agree. That doesn't mean that they don't care about cybersecurity. They care about cybersecurity a lot because again, they're very cognizant of risk. Now that doesn't at the same time mean that they don't have mitigations for catastrophes. They just aren't necessarily looking for cybersecurity sources of those catastrophic events. So they have thought about what happens if the wrong chemical gets introduced into the water supply, because you're dealing with several chemicals when you're talking about water treatment. So what happens if that happens because of a valve failure or you know a pump failure or something like that? Well, they have various checks and balances in their systems and human controls and things like that that watch for those changes. Now, have they necessarily planned for somebody doing that maliciously through accessing one of their control interfaces using computer means? Not necessarily. And that's a problem. And I wish that they had more resources to plan for that. But ultimately, they tend to have some kind of mitigation in place to prevent that that ultimate thing from happening. And in these cases, it, it seems to have saved them. But the cyber attack still happened. It was successful. They, the person got in. They just weren't able to launch the, the kinetic industrial attack portion of what they intended to do. And that's a problem. I definitely agree. And these, these utilities, municipal utilities, are incredibly under-resourced, and we need to be giving them better resources to do their jobs and not just demanding more from them because they have no more hours in the day. But yeah, I mean, those mitigating controls in, in terms of process and the, the end result of, of something kinetic or physical happening, those are effective, but they don't necessarily include mitigations for planning for somebody, say, tampering with the control interface that shows them the status of their equipment. So there are concerns there, especially in those really under-resourced utilities and manufacturing fields, et cetera. But yeah, those verticals are each a different can of worms and they operate differently and they have different resources. And you can't think about them as one conglomeration. You know, like I said, every vertical is totally different. You know, oil and gas is totally different. Dealing with oil and gas, which is like, there's money, there's resources, they have big security teams. And then you you deal with municipal water where it's like the one guy who happens to show up for DEF CON and he's like, hey, I really like this cybersecurity thing. I have no idea what to do. This is my one weekend off a year, but I really like cybersecurity. I wish I could do it. (laughs) Is there a pattern between the verticals that are well-funded and the verticals that are are not? Is it as simple as this is private industry and this is not? Mm, That's a really tough question. 
You can have private industry where the security team is really underfunded. It happens, certainly. Um, right. If leadership is leading them in the wrong direction, if yeah. uh, you know they aren't budgeting properly for security, that's absolutely true. They can have, you can have a big business with a lot of money and that's doing incredibly well in the bottom line that isn't budgeting properly for securing their network. That happens all the time. We've seen some major cases over the last few years where there was massive data breaches at huge companies that should have been able to do better. At the same time, you do have some small municipal utilities where people are incredibly dedicated and and going above and beyond and doing some incredible cybersecurity stuff. But in general, the resources and the proper motivation as an organization to fund and staff cybersecurity does play a big part in security posture and defense in depth and security detection. Something that we've repeatedly come to that has come through quite a, quite a bit in what you've been saying that I that I can't quite get over is that there are a lot of committed folks in this field who plan ahead, as simple as that sounds, who look at what would happen if there was valve failure. What would happen if a chemical was introduced at a level that is unsafe for human consumption? And the reason that surprises me, right, is because I have done quite a bit of reporting, specifically on laws, on laws that get passed because of data catastrophes, we'll call them, right? On data regulation, on data privacy legislation. And I think, you know, 10 for 10, right? Each of those laws that gets introduced gets introduced after something terrible has already happened. There's no, there's very little like, let's think what will come ahead in the future. It's, oh my goodness, we're already, we already messed up. So let's pass a law to no longer mess up in this very specific way all over again. And I think the best way to conceptualize also this, this sort of forward planning that I keep hearing about is to bring it in to something that I read that you wrote last year about a series of natural gas explosions that actually happened in 2018 tore apart several homes in the Merrimack Valley of Massachusetts, and you wrote at the time that the cybersecurity community was asking, is this, quote-unquote, the big one? Can you help me understand? Yeah, so my statement was was a little sarcastic. It was (laughs) tongue-in-cheek. I was kind of referring to the fact that a ton of really respected people in the cybersecurity community were assuming that this this incident was a cyber attack. And to me, you know, after a while in incident response, you kind of get a gut feeling for things. And it didn't feel like a cyber attack to me. And mm. probability-wise, it was much more likely to be what it actually was, a maintenance mechanical failure. Very unfortunately, it was a terrible catastrophe. So there's been a lot of talk in the cybersecurity community about what the quote-unquote big one will look like. The Five quotes in a row, quote unquote, the cyber Pearl Harbor, which I hate that. I hate that term yeah, so much. we hear that one a ton. It just makes me cringe because it's just incredibly disrespectful to people who died. But Right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of speculation, especially in the national security community of what that'll look like. And there have certainly been cyber kinetic events that have been parts of conventional military activity and also, you know, geopolitical things going on in the world. So it does absolutely can happen. There can be attacks. I wouldn't do this job if, if it wasn't a real threat. And one that deeply concerns me that there will be bad people who do bad things to industrial systems and cause 
potential loss of life, damage to equipment, loss of facilities, damage to the environment, et cetera, et cetera. Those, uh, those are reasons why I go to work every day. But at the same time, there's this idea that there's going to be this global catastrophic event that's going to affect everything and everyone simultaneously due to a cyber attack. And that's just rather obtuse and absurd, especially out of context of something else going on. You know, if somebody spends years and millions of dollars on planning for a cyber attack that causes something to happen, like in this case, you know, gas lines exploding, they're going to do it with a reason. They're, they're not just going to waste their money for kicks. They are going to do it because there's a war going on or there's a massive, you know, geopolitical conflict going on. There's a trade negotiations failing, something like that. A terrorist attack. It, it's going to go along with something else. It's not just going to happen out of the blue because it's incredibly costly to conduct those attacks. So it just didn't feel right to me. That's that's why I, I said that. It's, it's just I worry when people jump to the conclusion that things that look like industrial process failures are cyber attacks. It's you, the first thing you do when you're doing incident response in an industrial catastrophe is eliminate the things that have been causing, unfortunately, industrial catastrophes for decades, which are mechanical failures, maintenance failures, et cetera. Yeah, it's nice to hear a different perspective on this, right? That it isn't something that happens out of the blue, that it isn't happenstance and like someone just on a lark doing something that, like you said, will cost millions upon millions of dollars? It's worth saying there are people who are going to get into exposed industrial systems and hit buttons. Yeah. That does happen. Mm -hmm. There's stuff, there's lots of industrial systems exposed on Shodan. People find them all the time. And for the most part, 99% of the times they're hitting buttons doesn't do anything catastrophic because of all those mitigations I talked about. Is there a possibility that somebody's five-year-old gets onto a host on Shodan, hits every single button and causes something catastrophic to happen? Yes, but it's a very, very small chance because of all the safety controls and process controls in place. So then it sounds like the issue facing industrial control systems is funding for certain verticals. And so I wanted to ask, is there a way that we get the folks who need funding the funding they need? David, that's such a difficult question. You want to be careful with over-legislating. I think there's a, there's a, a place for legislation there and for government agencies to play a part in it, but it's more providing resources for organizations instead of requiring more standards be complied with. Because when you're talking about the really under-resourced utilities, they're struggling just to keep their computers running. So if you start adding more standards and checklists they have to comply with, they're going to do that instead of doing things like patching windows, which we really want them to do. You want to provide them resources, and those resources can come in a lot of forms. It can come in technologies, it can come in personnel, in funding, in just technical training resources, even program resources, documents, things that'll, that'll help them do security better. But really, the best thing we can give them is money and people, in my opinion. But yeah, I mean, people are thinking about that. I really love the work that CIS is doing right now. They're a wonderful organization, and they're thinking a lot about how they can support and provide timely information to utilities. So there is a lot of thought going into that. But yeah, there's some verticals that really need help out there. And another one is manufacturing. And they're even more problematic because they are entirely focused on the bottom line in a lot of cases. I thought it was interesting that the first thing you brought up, right, was legislation. Because, yeah, I was also like, oh, yeah, no way, that wouldn't work. Um, and a lot of people talk about it, though. It's, yeah, it's that's what it sounds that's like. It's a big topic of discussion, definitely. 
Yeah. And we see the same thing as well, right? We see the same thing that um, having to comply with a sort of checklist isn't necessarily how you become secure. I mean, I'm not going to name names on this podcast of anything or anyone, <laughs> but we can all think of some cases there. Like you said, getting utilities, people and money, how do you get them people? Well, I'm specifically talking about municipal and, and local government resources there. You know, I'm not talking about your manufacturing companies. That's an entirely different matter. But in terms of the things that are actually government organizations, local government organizations that are providing critical infrastructure services, absolutely, I do think that there's some responsibility held by governmental organizations to make sure that utilities that are or government organizations have the resources they need to do proper modern cybersecurity. Leslie, I went into this conversation, I'll be honest, thinking the sky is falling <laughs> and it appears like it isn't. And so is there any myth you wanted to dispel or is there any big thing you wanted to get across? Any action that you want to happen? Yes, yeah, so I've talked about a lot of myths in this podcast. Um, certainly the one of all verticals being alike and then also that they don't care about cybersecurity or that they aren't mitigating potential threats. They're definitely doing that just in different ways than we're familiar with. And something that I would like to convey to all IT cybersecurity people is that we can learn a lot from OT personnel in terms of risk management. We're actually really bad at risk management in IT in a lot of cases. If you tell people to plan for, you know, a threat hunt or something, they'll just go look for where an adversary might be because they kind of know how hackers hack systems. In an OT environment, you're thinking about the process and what can fail. So you're thinking about crown jewel systems and ways that somebody could potentially attack them. So in OT, you're really focused on the end result, that catastrophe, that worst case scenario. And we can learn a lot from that evaluation of risk and potential catastrophic scenarios in IT instead of just haphazardly monitoring and haphazardly doing threat hunting. It's really a great skill that industrial operators and engineers have been doing for decades. I mean, they've learned the hard way in a lot of cases. It's not some magic risk modeling that's come out of nowhere. There have been many unfortunate industrial accidents across the last century that have caused industrial safety regulations and safety systems to change and the mitigations that are in place to keep those things from happening. And again, that means that those operators and engineers have to be really, really good at modeling what could go wrong and the ways that it's prevented and the ways that it's not prevented. And if we could take that skill set and bring that into IT cybersecurity, man, we would be doing phenomenally at things like threat hunting and sensor placement and monitoring, incident response, things like that. But we're really not that good at it. We can learn a lot from the OT side of things. And sometimes we seem to talk down on them because they don't speak the same language as us. But really, we're talking about the same things. We just need to quantify cybersecurity risk in terms of process risk to have discussions with them. That's really the integral thing that a lot of IT people are missing when they go into industrial environments is they don't know how to talk about things in terms of process and process risk. You mentioned that sometimes one side doesn't see the other side on, on equal footing. Why is it hard to learn lessons from your neighbors, you know, like is what it sounds like. I wish everybody had your attitude. <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of bridges burned, especially this decade, decade and a half of industrial systems, when they've had cybersecurity people come in, it's been auditors telling them to do things like patch their systems. And you can't just patch a system that's like <laughs> providing power to 
thousands of houses, like it, it works as part of a system in its, its current configuration and you're going to take it out of warranty or take it out of service to patch it. Like, no, you can't do that. So they've had these auditors and these penetration testers come in and break everything and yell at them for doing things that they have to do because of their system and their vendor requirements and their operational requirements. And that's burned bridges, frankly. My boss jokes that I'm a marriage counselor, not an incident responder, because I spend a lot of time in incidents just getting people to sit down at the same table and talk to one another because there's so much animosity between the IT cybersecurity people and the operators and engineers in the industrial facility. So that's a big problem. Wow. I didn't know that. I had no idea about that. That sounds frustrating. It is. Things are getting better. We're starting to have a common dialogue again. But in a lot of places, IT really looks down on OT because they don't talk about things in terms of viruses and anti-malware and things like that. And OT really looks down on cybersecurity because they don't understand the process. And they're asking people to do things that are impossible in terms of the process operations. So they both think the other group is an idiot. And really, they're just speaking a different language. And they both care about risk. So hopefully things will improve. <laughs> I hope so too. Leslie, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on today's show. I had a blast. Thank you so much for inviting me. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Luta Security CEO and founder Katie Masouris about hacking into one of Silicon Valley's favorite apps, Clubhouse, and how that company's bug bounty program reveals some failures about bug bounty programs overall. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. <laughs>